Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Heritage Events Live, Leftism's Failure and the Rise of Homelessness. We're thrilled to have you here. Here are some tips for making the most of your virtual experience with us. Please submit questions through the questions tab. Feel free to share your name and affiliation. We love to know who's joining us. If there are any minor technical issues, we ask for your patience, as many of us are working from home and using home internet. I now invite Marie Fishpaw, the Director for Domestic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage, Heritage Events Live. My name is Marie, and it is a pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Leftism's Failures and the Rise of Homelessness. We have a great panel lined up today, and I invite our speakers to join me on screen as I tell you a little bit about them. We have Reverend Andy Bales, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Union Rescue Mission. He's joining us from Los Angeles, Skid Row. We have Heather McDonald, who is a commentator and essayist with, the City, with City Journal and Manhattan Institute. And Chris Rufo, who is a visiting fellow with the Heritage Foundation, and he is the director of the Center for Wealth and Poverty at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. So we're here to talk about how failed government policies have made homelessness worse. worse. And to see an impact example of how this is impacting Americans, here's a clip from a documentary that Chris has developed. San Francisco is falling apart. Tents, drugs, trash, and overdoses are everywhere. The city is home to more than 18,000 homeless, including 4,000 who suffer from homelessness, addiction, and mental illness simultaneously. The city government spends more than $1 billion a year on homelessness, but it's worse than ever. I'm here to find out what happened. I want to know how one of the world's richest cities turned out like this. Well, that can be a difficult video to watch, however short it is. Um, and it points to a problem far beyond San Francisco. So Chris, share with us a bit, what's going on with homelessness in the country? How is it getting worse and where is it a problem? It's a, an 11 minute film, it's up on YouTube if anyone would like to watch it, it explores uh, homelessness in San Francisco. And uh, you know, homelessness is uh, an issue that uh, the kind of top line that you hear over and over is that it's a national crisis, it's a national problem. Uh, when in fact nationally homelessness uh, is down over the last decade, um, but it's way up in certain cities, uh, especially West Coast cities such as Seattle, uh, Portland, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Sacramento uh, for a number of reasons. But uh, the key thing that I've learned uh, covering homelessness, um, uh, interviewing folks like Reverend Bales, uh, following in some of the footsteps of reporting from uh, Heather McDonald, um, is that uh, it, it's really at heart not a housing problem, it's a human problem. Uh, and the latest data shows that uh, roughly three quarters of the people who are living uh, unsheltered, so people in cars, tents, on the streets, uh, suffer from uh, severe mental illness uh, and uh, suffer from drug addiction, uh, or in about 51% of cases, suffer from both simultaneously. Uh, and this to me is really the core challenge, uh, is to, to try to figure out uh, what to do with a uh, actually a very sizable population of people who are out in the streets, uh, who are suffering from the most uh, kind of unimaginable human torments, 
Uh, and yet policymakers have maintained this fiction that all we have to do is build uh, expensive subsidized housing units, uh, give them to folks uh, and hope that things will turn around. Uh, in, it, it almost never works out that way. And unfortunately we're spending now uh, in these cities, billions upon billions of dollars for solutions uh, that don't work. So this is a question for everyone. Uh, the left is often quick to blame homelessness on a lack of free or affordable housing, however you define that. What other factors might be at play here? Um, and what do you think the biggest issues are that policymakers need to tackle head on? Let's start with Heather. Well, I agree with Chris. We've known this diagnosis of the people on the on the streets since the 1990s when Baum and Burns wrote a book completely exploding the myth that the problem is housing as opposed to ment mental illness and uh, substance abuse. But I would add one other fallacy, which is that the solution is more services. There is nothing that can be proposed that has not already been tried. You know, the, the requirement for any kind of policy initiative is to pretend that you're doing it for the first time. We have been doing outreach. We have been doing uh, unconditional housing on demand. We have been doing uh, attempts at, at treatment. Now, obviously, we have not really been changing our, our mental commitment laws to make those uh, more available to getting people who cannot evaluate their own well-being off the streets. But the service aspect of this that looks at the underlying conditions has also been tried. For me, what is the missing element, one that is under extreme attack, is enforcement. We have to establish a principle, the initial cornerstone of any response, which is that street colonization is not allowed, period. You, you establish that principle and that concentrates the mind. You can't go dithering on about building $800,000 uh, units for one single homeless person uh, because we can't afford it and there's not enough time. There has to be an enforcement aspect of this. This is how society for centuries dealt with this. The police moved people along. And if you understand as a society that this is not allowed, then you have to look at housing that is more feasible. I would advocate do not even think about creating either shelters or housing in urban areas. NIMBYism is a perfectly justifiable response. People should be proud to be NIMBYs. Nobody should have to live with their children next to a homeless facility because these are extremely troubled people. There is nothing shameful about saying not in my backyard. Instead, we should be building housing outside of cities in abandoned industrial areas or rural areas, clean and sober facilities where people can get their lives back together again. In the meantime, however, we simply cannot allow this behavior to continue because it will be the death of cities. That's a, a, fresh, a fresh perspective that really would stand a lot of the assumptions um, made in, in, by policymakers in cities uh, on their head. Um, and it's, you know, I, I'd like, I want to go to Reverend Bales next because um, I was in, San, in Los Angeles recently and you read about, you know, these, these so-called tent cities on the street and 
Um, and seeing them in person in Skid Row was amazing and, and, and troubling um, at the same time. So Reverend, talk to us about your experience. Um, you've been in, with, the, with the mission for over 30 years. Um, what are you seeing now and how might it have shifted over the, over the years? I've seen a total shift away from uh, responsibility um, to shelter people. I think that's the biggest problem. When you leave people on the streets for days or weeks or months or decades, they are totally devastated by homelessness. They, they develop addictions. They develop mental health. I couldn't make it 48 hours on the streets without being affected mentally. I've tried several times, 24 hours. At the end of 24 hours, I'm wiped out. And what we've had is a uh, in agreement a little bit with the other speakers, what we've had is a shift to what is thought of as perfect, a $749,000 unit with granite countertops. Everybody deserves a, a granite countertop and a, a shift of all the resources to the few away from the many. So what we have in LA is an attempt to build 10,000 units for 66,000 people devastated by homelessness, and we've ended up with 5,200 units and a movement away from immediate shelter. And I, I can share that for the same cost of 5,200 units, I could provide beds in uh, mobile homes for 156,000 people, preferably in a recovery program, as Heather described, a recovery community. Well, we've shifted completely away from recovery uh, toward harm reduction. Harm reduction means the free flow of drugs. So we used to say we're focusing on the perfect uh, and, and never getting to the good, right, of getting somebody under a roof. But it's not perfect. It's imperfect because in that $749,000 unit, drugs and alcohol flow freely. And I have proof. I have a, a letter right here that said, Andy, we will give you a free conditional use permit. You won't even have to meet with the neighbors if you will not intervene in drug addiction. If you will leave drug addiction alone, we'll give you a free CUP. In fact, we will give you money to help build that building if you will not intervene in alcohol and drugs. And what that has caused is skyrocketing street homelessness. We used to believe in recovery and transitional housing and teaching people. And now we believe in harm reduction, alcohol and drugs flow freely. And I wonder, what does that mean not to intervene? Does that mean don't have an NA meeting that you invite people to? Don't have an NA meeting that you invite people to? Uh, allow the drug dealer to show up at the front door and welcome him in. Allow the drug dealer and his six foot six, 400 pound hitman who, who collects debts. To, to walk in, I don't know what that means, but we, we have an upside down world where addiction is okay and people dying on the streets is okay and focusing on a few and letting drugs and alcohol run wild is, is okay, but leaving 50,000 people on the streets to die is okay. So I don't, I don't even call it pro progressive. I don't call it uh, leftism. I call it an abdication of responsibility and negligent homicide is going on in our in our cities. Four people a day die on the streets of Los Angeles from complications of homelessness and addiction leads the cause by far. Addiction leads the cause by far inside 
of those very expensive units. Addiction is killing our cities. We need a movement back to recovery. Sobering words, and and sounds like you're you are definitely feeling unsupported in your approach um, when you not interact only, with government officials. Not only unsupported, I think attempts to shut us down and close us down because we believe in recovery. We we not only don't get funded, we don't get uh, we get criticized in attempts to shut us down. So so not just unsupported, undermined. Um, I want to come back to some of the things you said in a minute. Uh, Chris, did you have anything you wanted to? To, to comment on that particular question before we shift gears? Yeah, I do. And I, I think that however bad it might seem in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle, um, it can actually get a lot worse. And I, I recently did an investigation where I went up to Vancouver, British Columbia, where they've opened so-called safe injection sites. Um, and this is, again, the philosophy of harm reduction. They accept addiction as a given, as a constant, as an inevitability. Um, and they specifically say, um, some of the leading kind of harm reduction theorists, uh, we know we'll never get people into recovery. So what we have to do is essentially uh, create conditions to kind of blunt the hardest edges of addiction and overdoses. And so what they do is they open these public uh, facilities uh, where people can go, um, they can inject heroin or methamphetamines. Uh, they even have sometimes these tanks where you can actually smoke or huff uh, substances in a kind of almost an airtight container. Um, and then their argument is that nobody has overdosed in one of these facilities. But the the, the numbers are actually suggest a, a kind of that is a that's a kind of a sleight of hand. Uh, by logic where no one has died of an overdose death on the floor of those facilities, but we have reason to believe that people uh, shoot up in the facilities, walk out, uh, and then have perhaps overdosed and died either on the streets or en route to the hospital. And uh, in a small period of time, uh, 1,500 people overdosed outside within one block radius of the facility because what happens is that it creates a magnet for drug dealers, drug users, uh, and, and essentially kind of criminal gangs uh, where they can operate with impunity. And uh, what we've seen is a skyrocketing rate of overdose deaths, of crime, of violence, uh, all while the, the kind of political leaders are centralizing services, centralizing resources. And in the downtown east side neighborhood of Vancouver, Canada, they're now spending $1 million a day on social services targeting these addicts. And yet all of the actual measurements of well-being uh, are just plummeting. Uh, and so what, what we have is this really kind of perverse system where there is more human misery than ever. And yet the nonprofits uh, and administrators and, and public health uh, officials uh, congratulate themselves on their compassion uh, and draw, in many cases, a six-figure paycheck uh, to kind of regurgitate the platitudes of progressivism uh, while people are dying under their supposed care. Oh, wow. Um, one of one thing that you've been sort of hinting at a little bit along the way is that homelessness might look different in different cities. Um, Heather, can you explain um, how how homelessness might look better in, in well, different in a city that has different policies and how they approach it? Um, say, does, in, does Indianapolis look different than San Francisco, for example? Uh, I'm not sure about that. It looked different. I, I I assume you mean quantity rather than quality because quantity or rather than quality or the response to it is a more precise way of putting it. Yeah. Well, again, I just want to stress the the compassion element of this is is absolutely appropriate. The discourse from conservatives has has always been 
couched in terms of what's best for the people on the street. And that may be a rhetorical strategy that is absolutely necessary and without which you're not going to make any progress. I'm just going to be very uh, unpolitically correct here and say, I think we need a balanced discourse and talk about compassion for small business owners, people who are working their way up the housing ladder, who should not have to have this in their midst. Those people have rights as well, uh, and nobody is speaking up for them. So there are cities, uh, I think, that take an approach that I would take, which is the baseline rule is you do not get to take over city sidewalks. It is terrifying. It is completely inimical to the ability of a, of a city to function with people walking to have feces around hyperdermic needles. It is, it is a state of utter barbarism. The government get what they create. The more they tolerate this, and it is a decision, it is completely a voluntary decision on the part of governments of how much do you enforce things. New York City uh, has gone down at a rate of just stunning rapidity so that the street situation gets worse and worse and worse. Why? Because out of fear of disparate impact and mass incarceration, the police have backed off of enforcing low-level quality of life laws. They've backed off enforcing anti-encampment laws. Had they enforced these things, what it does is it, it at the moment you're faced with a dilemma. You know, this is this is what the courts have saddled us with. This absurd ruling that started in Los Angeles with this ACLU's case of Jones v. LA that then was reaffirmed, sadly. Uh, of Martin versus uh, Boise a couple, a year or so ago that held cities hostage to whether they have, if every single homeless person that night demanded housing, which never happens because the homeless would prefer overwhelmingly to stay on the streets where they can party uninhibited. Uh, but if every homeless person asked for housing at that same moment, would there be enough shelter? If not, you cannot do anything about this. Uh, that, that sort of capitulation has increased our problems. We have to fight those types of legal rulings. Uh, but, but basically, again, this has to start with enforcement and the recognition that if you allow it, they will come. So if you have a rule that says you're not going to allow, be allowed on the street it changes decision-making earlier in the process. Burns and Baum in their ground, ground, groundbreaking book in the 1990s talked about social disaffiliation, that people on the streets have broken ties with their friends, with their families, with those social support networks that help distressed people stay housed and on the streets. But if you know there's a safety valve that you can always just take off, get in your car, live in Venice, you know, in, in your car or hang out on the streets, then there's less need to maintain those social affiliations. Mm -hmm. And we enable a lifestyle 
that sends a message that this is okay, uh, you can hang out, and of course we provide those services that enable it. You know, you've got pizzas delivered to people's cardboard boxes in New York City. You have an entire industry that is ideologically committed to keeping people on the streets because they serve as allegedly visible symbols of the failure and heartlessness of capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. So there is a, a, an ideological reason why people are on the streets, and that is to part of a much larger uh, agenda that is going on here. I'd like to maybe build on that. It, it, it is, you know, the, the migratory data is quite clear. Um, uh, on the streets of Seattle, for example, uh, within the city limits, 51% of people uh, are actually not from Seattle. Their last known residence was not in Seattle. So you've actually doubled, at least doubled the problem there. Uh, about a quarter of, of people who are homeless uh, in King County, the surrounding county outside of Seattle. Uh, I had to do a public records request and actually threaten to file a lawsuit to get this data from the county. They finally revealed it. About a quarter of them are from out of state. Uh, so people are coming from out of state, out of county, out of city. Uh, you're, you're probably realistically, uh, if, if you kind of parse the data, you're probably quintupling the problem simply by, by creating the incentives for people to come. Uh, if you have a city where it's uh, easy to shoot up, you can commit property crimes uh, without getting arrested or being incarcerated, uh, and you can essentially get uh, kind of do-gooders uh, to provide services for you, no matter what your behavior is, no matter what kind of destruction you, 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 you kind of create in the surrounding neighborhoods, that is then a very attractive place for people to go. It's very simple, and I tell mayors uh, and city councils this, you compete with other cities and jurisdictions on economics, on infrastructure, on quality of life, on parks. Why would you not compete on the number of people causing chaos in your streets? Uh, you have to enforce the law to the greatest extent. And I I'd like to share maybe some good news uh, that is kind of hard to find in this, but I have a study of, of Houston, Texas that's coming out in a book uh, next year with Pacific Research Institute. And Houston, Texas is really the kind of untold success story on homelessness. Uh, their strategy, and Houston is a kind of a blue city in a red state, so it has a unique political culture. They have a, a, a longtime Democratic congressman, African-American gentleman who's their mayor, um, but his rhetoric is unthinkable in a place like San Francisco. He says, we need to have a policy regime of tough love. Um, we're here to help you. We're here to provide housing and services, but you absolutely cannot camp on the streets. Uh, and we're going to defend neighborhoods against street-level chaos. Uh, he's battled the ACLU and won lawsuits against them, and he's been very, very strict. And consequently, uh, despite a rise in rents, uh, you know, kind of roughly comparable to some of the other blue cities in the West Coast, uh, they've been able to reduce homelessness by more than 50% in the past eight years. Um, so as homelessness is skyrocketing in jurisdictions uh, that create kind of uh, unlimited compassion or ruinous compassion, uh, the cities that are tightening up and saying, we're linking services to responsibility, uh, we're linking our compassion to an expectation of change behavior, and we're absolutely not tolerating street level disorder, those cities have been successful. Uh, and in some ways, those cities have done it by even spending uh, many fewer dollars. So I think Heather is absolutely right in this idea that uh, compassionate enforcement is the key. Uh, that's a phrase that kind of combines both ends of the deal. Uh, and I think that mayors who have uh, the kind of courage and the intelligence uh, to make a difference will adopt their policies uh, according to that philosophy.
sort of that, I, I think you did a great job, Chris, kind of threading the two sides of the coin here that we've been hearing and sharing the, the example of what it looks like when somebody does put that in practice. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear from Reverend Andy Bales just a bit more. Um, uh, you know, Reverend, um, you're on the front lines. You, you interact with homeless as, for, as, as a calling. Um, what are you seeing that motivates someone on the streets to think that they can um, get off the streets and have a different life? Um, and, you know, what, to what extent should policymakers be looking at, at those factors as, as they figure out how to support you in those efforts? I believe people will come in if there are welcoming, caring services and, and hope for recovery. The problem we have in LA is we have 66,000 people devastated by homelessness. We had built ourselves up to 16,000 immediate shelters. Uh, because of COVID and lower capacity now, we're down to about 8,000 uh, shelter beds that people could retreat to. And I can tell you honestly, there is nowhere to go. It's not a matter of they don't want to come in with enough coaxing and encouragement and trying to give somebody a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. I have experienced 32 weeks in a row being under a river bridge, talking to a man and having him finally come in. So it is compassion and caring and welcoming, but it's also recovery. And right now, somebody on the streets who wants to recover has nowhere to go. I thought it was entirely hypocritical and I spoke out against LA for going to the Supreme Court on the Boise case. You're gonna to go to the Boise case and fight for the right to sweep people to where? To nowhere. You're, you're fighting to sweep people and come down on people and you're not providing a place to go. And then if those few who do graduate from a recovery program, they move into housing, well, you can't find housing where alcohol and drugs don't freely flow. And so everybody says, I can't, I can't take it there. I can't, I can't take it with all the crime and violence and drugs and alcohol. So they move back. So it's, it's just a matter of offering recovery and transitional housing that shapes people. They will take it up when they get sick enough of being sick and tired, they will come in. But, but our world doesn't offer them opportunities for for alcohol and drug rehabilitation anymore we've moved to letting them die on the streets and so la is a totally different animal than any other city in the country we focus all the resources on a few and we leave the many and the cost of housing plays plays a role and also i i would like to say that biggest cause of homelessness as heather uh, alluded to is uh uh, the complete dis disintegration of their families or they burned every bridge with their families. And so reestablishing a familial type atmosphere of love and recovery and community. We offer all kinds of classes, but it's the community of peers striving to get sober that does the best work here at Union Rescue Mission. And that's what we need to offer people struggling with brokenness and homelessness and trauma for, for decades. My own dad spent uh, years four to 17 off and on in homelessness. The, the last week of his life, all he could talk about was the devastation and pain and shame and embarrassment of his childhood 
homelessness. That's what homelessness does to people. Leaving people on the streets destroys them. We're, we're not talking about people who yesterday showed up on the streets with an alcohol and drug problem and mental illness. And it's because we've not addressed their need that they've become devastated and mentally ill. And, and, and they've turned to drugs to escape the hell on earth that they're living in. And so it's, as I said, it's a, a total abdication of responsibility. And we need welcoming places that promote sobriety and recovery and total life transformation. That's what people need. Houston, I, I give credit to Star of Hope, Star of Hope Mission yeah. doing a splendid job there and, and the government there being for them and allowing them to do their, their life transforming work. Yeah, imagine if LA was as supportive of you as Houston. Um, I, did someone want to say something? Heather, please. Yeah. I mean, I've had the great privilege of, of working with Mr. Bales before for my article on Safer City Initiative under Bratton and the great uh, Commander Smith, who used to be in the downtown Skid Row uh, precinct commander of the LAPD. Nope. And so I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to differ at all from his opinion. And obviously I do not have anywhere near the street experience, but I would simply reverse the order. I do not think that housing should be and services should be the precondition for enforcement. Enforcement comes first. It is not acceptable that somebody is 32 weeks on the street deciding not to take offers of shelter and services. It's just not acceptable. We cannot wait that long. Uh, you, you have to start as a ground rule. You're not on the streets. That you start with. Where and would then, you go? I say, it concentrates the mind. And you do provide shelter, but it is not in cities. It is, it is where it can be done for extremely low cost, en masse bulk that is not going to destroy neighborhoods with, with individuals who are unable to maintain a drug-free regime, at least initially. Uh, recovery is obviously the goal, but I, I simply do not think that waiting for somebody to accept services, and we've been doing this for decades, this is nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun in homeless policy and services that has not been tried since the 1990s. Oh, it's it's new. Uh, harm reduction, of drugs is brand new, and and it's being pushed. You don't have a choice. You have one choice, and that is harm reduction, free flow of drugs and alcohol. No other choice is being offered. Fortunately, we've but, influenced the United. Uh, state's Interagency Council on Homelessness, and you'll see a 37-page document that just came out that's going to move it back to practicality and reality. Fortunately, we have federal judge David Carter, who's had a lawsuit come before him in L.A., which is going to force a more practical, uh, sober approach, and it's coming soon. Uh, November, uh, Early November, our judge is going to uh, make a decree and bring L.A. back to reality and, and away from the the mythical, uh, naive, idealistic, uh, permanent supportive housing for all, which will never, we know we don't have enough resources to ever achieve that. Well, and let's, um, let's drill down on, let's, sorry, let's just drill down a, a bit on that um, concretely. So, you know, uh, we hear harm reduction. So the, the Heather's point about the firm uh, set, set, setting expectations um, and, 
and Andy's point about um, providing services that actually work. Chris, talk about why there is like there's a complete path that's being pursued on, on pushing housing. Um, you know, both everybody on this call drew some points in it, but tell us about that eight hundred thousand dollar condo. What 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 is the the current agenda coming down from the left? And then we'll talk about better ways. Yeah, the, the the current model is is really you know two things. Harm harm reduction is is again the idea that uh, you take drug addiction, widespread drug addiction and dysfunction as a norm. You try to kind of blunt its edges. And uh, in Vancouver, Canada, it's gotten to the point where they're now running a pilot program funded by taxpayers, uh, where they have an ATM style vending machine uh, that biometrically scans uh, drug users and provides them with a free pill of oxycodone. A, a, a very powerful uh, kind of hair, synthetic heroin uh, substitute. Um, and it, it really is kind of like the Soma distribution in, in the novel, A Brave New World. Uh, they're saying we're gonna now have kind of vending machines throughout the area uh, providing uh, strong narcotics uh, to this population. Uh, it, to essentially, their, their idea is that if we do that, it will reduce um, Kind of illicit drug sales. It will reduce overdoses because they won't be cut uh, with other substances. But but we know that that is going to be a disaster. Uh, the second part of that is saying people want to be. We want to get people inside. So what we should really do is that kind of shelters, kind of congregate shelters, mass shelter facilities are inhumane. They're not a permanent solution. So what we need to do is essentially provide a studio or one bedroom apartment to everyone on the streets. Uh, but what they don't want to do is require participation in any programs, uh, require uh, sobriety, require um, treatment for mental illness. And the data is really clear. It's been studied by, by people who are by no means conservatives, but uh, the, the data is clear. If you take someone off the streets and place them in a $500,000, six, $700,000 apartment uh, with no requirements to participate in, in any treatment uh, or, or really any rules of any kind, um, it doesn't, it doesn't reduce drug abuse, it doesn't reduce psychiatric symptoms, it doesn't actually even reduce the rate of death. And in a recent study from Canada, um, people who were put in these permanent supportive housing units that are enormously expensive to build and enormously expensive to run, were actually five times more likely to die than people who were simply left on the streets, a control group uh, that had no intervention. So these are really kind of, you're taking dysfunction on the streets, and you're actually centralizing dysfunction in these apartment units, uh, and you're actually doing nothing to address those human challenges. And on top of that, it's enormously expensive. Los Angeles, uh, you know, has this kind of big gamble. They spent, they, they, they floated a bond for $1.2 billion. Uh, they're hitting less than half of their housing targets. And at the end of the day, they'll house less than 10% of the people who are on the streets with no pathway outwards. And the, the real kind of, kind of, kind of financial, problem is that these function as annuities. Uh, if someone has schizophrenia and a meth addiction uh, and, and, is, and you're providing no treatment for that person, you're essentially committing the taxpayer to a, a lifetime housing subsidy for that person. Whereas if you have a program like Heather's proposed or like, uh, like Reverend Bales uh, runs, um, that actually gets people off the streets and rehabilitates them, gets them employed, uh, gets them uh, sober, gets them treated for mental illness. Uh, the University of Alabama at Birmingham has run studies on these programs called Treatment First. Um, and they have a remarkable success uh, rate. About 40% of people are sober after one year. 
uh, and, and 50% of men are employed after one year. So you can get people through a program and on the path to self-sufficiency, uh, which is the exact opposite of the kind of dominant uh, housing first regime that we have today. Well said, thank you. So I, I got an interesting question that came in from the audience. Um, and, and I think we're gonna ask it in two parts. So if, if a homelessness person asks someone for money on the street, what should they do? How can they be helpful to that person? But then what can they do to help the bigger systemic problems? What letters should they, what should they ask someone in uh, city government to do? What should they ask someone in Congress to do? Um, Heather, do you wanna take that one first? I remember maybe 20 years ago being stunned when I heard Rush Limbaugh say that if he gets asked for money on the street, he'll give somebody a $50 bill. So it just shows that even the sort of most conservative of, uh, of, of political social analysts can be absolutely blind when it comes to certain social problems. Never ever uh, give cash to people on the street. I can guarantee you any city that has a a, a bum vagrant problem has feeding pro programs galore. I was outside the Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco in the Tenderloin District doing reporting and people were so uh, profligate with the food they, they were getting out of their, their lunch that they were just throwing uh, half-eaten chicken legs around on, uh, onto the gutter. Uh, the, the money that you give to a homeless person is going to go immediately into drugs. There was a, a surprisingly groundbreaking study that the New York Times Magazine did in the 90s when we're, you know, all, again, none of this is new. None of this is new. We've been saying the same thing since the 90s, but it asked, it followed, uh, had a whole sort of rogues gallery of photos of the, of the most familiar subway beggars uh, and who go through the subways in New York claiming these patently preposterous stories about their, their war wounds and their mother with cancer and whatnot. It tracked them all down. They were all spending the money on drugs. So it is, it is completely fungible. If you want, if you feel like you need to be a good Samaritan, offer to take somebody to a restaurant and buy food. He will turn you down. That you will you will not get that offer because food is not the issue. Uh, and as far as your government goes, what do you what do you tell your government? You say, I expect you to fulfill the reason that you exist at all, which is public order, which is the maintenance of a society that respects the law. Everything else, all the social services, all the social uplift. That is secondary. If a government cannot maintain the precondition for commerce, for safety, for people to be able to get to school, to work without fear, then that government has no right to exist. So what you should be telling your government is, we expect you to keep the streets clean and safe. That is, nothing else matters if you cannot do that. I agree with Heather on the not giving funds to people on the streets. I always say, look them in the eye, treat them like a human being as they should be treated and invite them to go somewhere public uh, for lunch and listen to their story and connect them with resources. If there are any resources in the area to connect them with. And um, what I tell people in LA 
is uh, call me and I will send an Uber to where they are and we will have a, a bed waiting for them uh, if they would like help. So I have billboards up in LA with my phone number, my cell phone number. Oh. If you're homeless, call me and we will get you help. Um, and it would be great if we had sufficient places to take people when they do call. Uh, but but it, they need more than uh, change, as the disciples said, uh, silver or gold have I none, but I do have an opportunity to change your life. Would, would you like to take it? And that's pretty much what, what I say. I, I, couldn't, I wouldn't have enough money if I gave money to everybody who asked in Los Angeles, but I can introduce you to a, a new way of life. And often uh, people will take it and, and then stay at it, stay at advocating with them until they're ready to, to make a change. Uh, and, I, and for the government, I, I say similar to Heather, um, we cannot continue to tolerate the chaos. I mean, Skid Row, um, you, you can watch the Citizen app of what happens near 545 South San Pedro. Every few minutes, somebody with a gun, somebody with a knife, a woman being assaulted. If you watch it very long, you'd be so discouraged. But we have, we have allowed Skid Row to become, as, as a Spanish speaker just recently told me, worse than a third world country because of the yeah. devastating violence allowed on the streets. And Skid Row now has, has begun to envelop all of Los Angeles, not mm -hmm. just the 53 square blocks of insanity that is known as Mardi Gras on crack, as Commander Andy Smith used to say. <laughs> it has enveloped all of Los Angeles. I'd like to add maybe two things, two stories that illustrate some of these concepts. The first is, to Heather's point, you know, we should not underestimate the kind of delusional compassion of residents of some of America's most progressive cities. And, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, there was one example where a, a group of, of, of kind of people who wanted to make a difference on homelessness that run a, a website, a Facebook page, had a picture of a gentleman um, who said he was 26 years old um, and claimed that he had um, shot and killed a child in the Bosnian Civil War as a US soldier. Uh, and they were raising thousands and thousands of dollars for this person, $5,000, $6,000, providing with all sorts of things. Very clear visually that this person was suffering from a severe uh, drug addiction. Um, but I kind of immediately thought, wait a minute, when was the Bosnian Civil War? That was in the, you know, the 1990s. This guy is 26. He was, you know, maybe just barely born at this time. And you realize that even a basic level of historical knowledge and arithmetic would totally blow up this fiction that this person was selling. And yet people are so desperate to believe in it um, that they're willing to kind of jettison any kind of knowledge or skepticism or, or analysis. Um, and they just want to provide unlimited compassion. And I think that the ultimate tragedy of Housing First, the ultimate tragedy of harm reduction, uh, the ultimate tragedy of progressivism as a political ideology is that they don't conceive of any limits. Their view of the world is limitless. Uh, and, a, and, and a limitless world uh, can, can do nothing to stop uh, what what we very, very clearly see. I spent some time on Skid Row. I, 
I, I read Heather's piece from City Journal about the Safe Streets Initiative. I met with Andy and, and, and you see people chasing others with machetes. You hear stories from officers where they're kidnapping people and raping them for months at a time in these subsidized housing units. Uh, and I mean, the most horrible thing imaginable. And the, the, the reality of human life is that uh, human nature needs limits. Uh, and we have a political class that is unwilling and incapable uh, of even conceptualizing those limits. Well said, thank you, Chris. Well, we are at the uh, 45 minute mark. Um, and I think that um, it's probably a good stopping point. Um, I they think there's much more that could be said. Um, and I want to make sure that you all, all everyone in the audience can connect with our speakers um, for the follow up on their, to read their work and, and follow up with them. So I'd like to thank our panelists for sharing your insights. I'd like to thank you the audience for the great questions you posed and for joining us for this important conversation. So right after this event, if you're in the audience, you'll receive a survey. We hope you will complete it. Um, we wanna continue to bring you events that, and ideas that speak to the questions at hand. Uh, to see the events we have coming up, check out heritage.org slash events to uh, follow any of the speakers. Their Twitter handles are right in front of you. And again, thank you and have a great day.